Thank you for listening to the only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You can find all of our episodes at pharmacypodcast.com. Hey, thank you, Pharmacy Podcast listeners, for coming back for another show. So we're having a returning guest come back through the interview with Ron Lanton, who is the president of uh, True North Political Solutions. He's welcoming back uh, the Carmen Mazina Attorneys at Law, Natalia Mazina, to the show, which is going to be an exciting show to, to really go through some business law specific to pharmacy. Our pharmacy owner, you'll definitely want to listen to this show gives you some highlights with regards to pharmacy business law. And really, um, if you've ever had a, had a fear of potential legal action or discipline, um, this could be a... Some pharmacies don't record errors and don't uh, create potential adverse evidence in collection of certain errors. And if you are one of these pharmacies, you really shouldn't fear. Uh, most states have enacted a statutory exemption from discovery of question and answer uh, records. The goal behind the Q&A requirements is not to penalize, but to provide pharmacists with the knowledge to improve pharmacy processes and enhance existing procedures in order to reduce the incident of medical errors, medication errors. So definitely be ready for this show. Before that, heads up. Pharmacy Times update. Washington State signs provider status legislation into law, recognizes pharmacists as providers. Great news. Congratulations to the state of Washington. Late last week on Friday, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signed into law a landmark legislation requiring health insurance carriers to include pharmacists as network providers. Bravo. So that's great news as we uh, move forward to the day uh, soon to come that pharmacists are recognized as healthcare providers on a federal level uh, throughout the entire country. All right, let's get into the show with uh, uh, over at True North Political Solutions, Ron Lanton, as he interviews um, Natalie Mazina with Carmen and Mazina, pharmacy and business attorneys from the great state of California. This is Natalia Mazina from Carmen and Mazina, and you'll listen to Pharmacy Podcast. Good afternoon, Pharmacy Podcast listeners. This is Ron Lanton, government affairs strategist for the Pharmacy Podcast show and president of True North Political Solutions, where we provide our clients with advocacy and marketplace intelligence. We are very happy to have a return guest on the show today, Natalia Mazina of Carmen and Mazina. How are you? Good. Thank you, Ron, for having back us. Yes. Yes. Uh, we loved your show so much. We figured we'd bring you on again to talk about some uh, interesting developments in the legal world where it comes to pharmacy. And we figured if, if there is um, some major developments that continue to happen, which there always uh, will be, we do foresee that. Uh, we'd have you back on the show to talk about them. Thank you so much. We're happy to be back as well. Good, good. Well, um, I think the first thing we can start off with, um, just talking about what's happening, big case that's happened, um, Armstrong versus Exceptional Child Center. 
Could you tell our listeners about why pharmacists should be concerned about this case? Sure. Uh, as you mentioned in the previous podcast, we're attorneys of Medicaid Defense Funds, and many listeners, I'm sure, are aware of this nonprofit organization. It's been litigating Medicaid reimbursement cuts to pharmacists for over 20 years. Lynn Carmen is the principal of Medicaid Defense Funds. So with this recent decision of Supreme Court, the litigation Medicaid Defense Fund sort of stops because the court held that providers cannot sue states for violation of federal law. And what it means is that there is a section Medicaid Act, Section 30A, and this is the section we've been litigating under for all those years. It requires states to assure payments are consistent with efficiency, economy, and quality of care. So before, if your state Medicaid program decides to cut your reimbursement rates, you could have sued state for violation of federal law under supremacy clause. So now your Supreme Court says there's no redress in the court for you. You have to petition CMS directly in pointing out the violation of federal law, and it's up to CMS to enforce that federal law, not to you as a provider. We do not think it's the end of the world, however, and there are possible possibility actually to sue the state under the Medicaid Act still, even with this unfavorable decision. But the path is now more complicated. Our strategy was still going to be engaged in Medicaid reimbursement cut litigations, but now our plan is will be to have our beneficiaries and providers petition federal government and notify them of this violations of the state. And if the CMS does not take any action within 10 days, file the APA suit. APA stands for Administrative Procedure Act. And simultaneously, while waiting for this, you file for preliminary injunction pending determination of the case. So as you see, this is a much more difficult path to get to the federal government. But it's, that's the way the court, U.S. Supreme Court, is suggesting. And Justice Breyer actually stated that uh, CMS is cap- capable of handling the problems like that. Why the providers, such as pharmacists, should enforce federal law. Well, we think Medicaid Defense Fund thinks that reliance on CMS to enforce federal law is very misplaced. First, there's inherent conflict because for every dollar the state saves in those programs that federally funded, the federal government saves them too. Secondly, CMS is so underfunded that it cannot possibly supervise the compliance in our view. And of course, it's, it's, it's very impractical, actually, for CMS to go to every state and make sure that they are compliant with Medicaid Act. So we are still open for potential litigation, and Armstrong is a very, very unfavorable decision. It threw away nearly half a century of decisions which held that when there is a violation of federal law by the state, uh, a person, as in this case a provider or a beneficiary, can sue states under the Supremacy Clause. So this is the case in a nutshell in our potential litigation strategy, which we're planning to engage. You know, you know that's a good thing about that, because when I read it, 
I mean, I, I know that there's, there's always a way if you try to think about it. And I think that that's going to be very encouraging for pharmacists that, that, you know, they have some kind of an option on the state level that they can ex- explore what, you know, the, the situ- situation you were describing. It's funny when CMS gets involved in these kinds of things because, you know, half of me is encouraged and then half of me is skeptical. The half of me that's encouraged says, okay, I saw that CMS, you know, earlier last year, they came out with that huge rule um, with regards to Part D. I know we're getting a little bit off subject, but they came out with this. It showed that they wanted to do something, take some control. They've got the MAC uh, stuff that comes out January 1st, 2016, uh, where they put in standards that PBMs have to, to follow for MAC updates. So that's the encouraging side of me when I hear that they have to you know, if someone has a problem with being underfunded, they have to go back to CMS and deal with that. The other half of me that's skeptical says, you know, they typically haven't really been engaged on a, you know, I don't want to say grassroots level, but, you know, on a level like this. Can they do it? You mentioned how they were under, underfunded. You know, that's, that's definitely a, a problem. The conflict of interest, you're, you're absolutely correct. That's a problem or a potential problem. But the other thing that I'm wondering is, what happens if a plan just goes to CMS and says, well, you know, just like the excuses we've been using before, we don't have to do any of this because of ERISA. I mean, how do you deal with that? Very often, if a potential plaintiff, or if you were talking about beneficial provider pharmacists, go to CMS with a complaint like that, most likely they won't hear anything from CMS. If there are enough providers got together and petitioned CMS saying, you know, that's not enough. It's not enough to reimburse our services. Our, our patient's access is jeopardized. So maybe then CMS will start some investigation. Very likely they will close them pretty, pretty fast. Because in our experience, when there is a um, alleged violation of federal law by states, Feds are not very, at least the CMS, we talk about CMS and healthcare, not any other subjects. CMS is very reluctant to come to the state and impose the federal law, the Special Medicaid Act, because again, if the state is saving money and if there's, they can come up with some reason for those cuts, the CMS most likely will support those cuts. Does that answer your question, Ron? I'm not sure. It does. No, no, it, it, it does. It does. Well, let me ask you this question then uh, for the folks that are, they, they see a Supreme Court case and they're like, wow, you know, that really does set things in snow. Um, what if a pharmacist has an idea that maybe this case could be overturned by a congressional bill? Is that, is that an option? It is, but I don't think the Congress will get involved with this anytime soon. Yeah, you know, I'm looking out at Congress. You know, everyone knows we see the TV now. We have a lot of people lining up to be presidential contenders for next year's election. Um, you know, time is definitely growing short this year to try to do something. I know Congress is really fixed on uh, 21st century cures and, you know, some of these other major initiatives like the precision medicine initiative that the Obama administration is doing for uh, genetics and trying to target certain uh, diseases to make personalized medicine a lot easier. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to issues like this, it, 
you know, the time is definitely running short, and I really don't think next year, um, although I, I encourage people to try, yeah. um, you know, everybody's going to really be focused on the election. So, okay. Well, that kind of puts a damper in people's spirits, but, uh, you know, like you said, there's always something that they, that they can try on the state level, and I definitely think that's worth exploring. Well, the next question I have, um, I know uh, it kind of takes us outside of, of California a little bit, but uh, the Texas Supreme Court had a decision that I thought was also very key for pharmacy, especially ones that uh, do compounding in office, uh, the Randall Mill Pharmacy versus Miller case. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, there was a plaintiff that alleged that she suffered blindness in both eyes. Uh, due to a severe adverse reaction to a compounded drug. And this particular compounded drug was administered, uh, I believe it was by weekly injections by her physician, um, as a course treatment for hepatitis C. Really interesting case that got into um, whether or not a pharmacist might be recognized as a healthcare provider. Um, and we kind of see that trend in the legislature um, in a few states where pharmacists are, are really advocating for, uh, very strongly about how they should be recognized because when you really look at it, it's almost like that's the only profession that doesn't have that label. Uh, and it would be very beneficial for a pharmacist to continue to provide more services. Um, since this was a fairly new case, I know we've talked offline about this a little bit. Is there any, um, I guess, observations or opinions that you have about this case? Yes, it's a very interesting case because, as you mentioned, the court held, the Supreme Court of Texas held that the if the pharmacy engaged in office use compounding, it's dispensing drugs, therefore it's a healthcare provider, and therefore it's entitled to certain protections. In this case, they were talking about Texas Medical Liability Act, which provides framework governing liabilities claims against healthcare providers. And in this case, for example, plaintiff did not submit expert testimony. So there is some additional protection for pharmacists when they're sued, as well majority of states enacted a cap under the, those liability acts on how much plaintiff can recover from that provider. So it's a beneficial case to the pharmacy. Many commentators actually online or actually some senators actually also expressed concern that this case contradicts federal law. And federal law I'm talking about is Drug Walls and Security Act. And majority, I'm sure, of listeners know that this act prohibits any office use by compounding by a pharmacy. It does not recognize it as dispensing, so it's a contrary to that Texas Supreme Court case, and prohibits it defined as a manufacturing. So that's what the plaintiffs in this case were suing under. They were manufacturing, pharmacists were manufacturing products and they were suing pharmacy under the product liability. The court did not agree with the federal law. And a lot of people are wondering why. Why did they go against the federal law? Well, I think what happened in this case is the Supreme Court just didn't want to deal with it. They say if you're Compounding, office use, not office use, you are dispensing. If you are dispensing, you are providing services to a patient. Therefore, you are a healthcare provider. So I think that the court just didn't want to engage into this polemics between federal and state law because the 
Federal Quality Drug Quality and Security Act is a, a little bit ambiguous in this content as well because it provides that states are the one who will be enforcing the law. It will. It says that the uh, FDA will actually single out those potential pharmacies that violate the act and will contact their state board of pharmacies regarding these potential violators. So it does give state board of pharmacies some leverage on how to deal with the violations of the act. So if you're a pharmacy in a state that that does allow officers compounding, check out those pharmacy law handbooks and see if your manual has something like sentence saying the office you shall comply with applicable federal law. And if it does have that sentence in that manual, that means that the state gives more leverage to the feds to enforce compounding. If it does not have sentence like that, I encourage you to contact your board of pharmacy and talk to them or maybe ask them to issue some kind of a newsletter or email alert, how they will approach this problem. And we don't know really because a lot of states are entering into memorandums of understanding with federal government on particular this subject, how they will deal with office use compounding. I kind of yeah, got off the subject here. <laughs> no, you didn't because you brought up some really good points because that whole Drug Quality Security Act thing is huge right now. Everybody's trying to figure out, okay, what kind of standards do we have to comply with? And it's funny because this, I, I see this case and I see you know legislation across the country where some people are really trying to pick this up and, and, and just say, okay, we're going to handle this issue where it comes to compounded medication in bulk for uh, doctor's office use. And it's just, it's funny because nobody's really looked at this issue before. Um, you know, you had the unfortunate incident happen uh, in Massachusetts with the New England Compounding Center. And obviously that was different than, you know, just the office use compounding. But really it's, it's brought about the, the issue that nobody's really looked at this before and how do we deal with it. And you've got that federal state conflict. So um, I think definitely the advocates of um, physicians' office compounding use will take this and say, look, you know, if Texas Supreme Court is, is okay with this, maybe this isn't so bad. You know, maybe we can uh, either work with the state board of pharmacy or, or create some kind of standards that recognizes this because this could be beneficial for patients and, and for everyone involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, yeah, as, as you recall, under the uh, the Act right now, the only pharmacies, not even pharmacies, but the only entity which can compound for office use is outsourcing facilities. And those are typically big, sterile compounders out there. So what those smaller pharmacies who do not want to commit to be an outsourcing facility should do? It's a big issue, and a lot of people don't know what's going to happen. Well, let's move on to our last issue of today, and that. Um, is regarding um, specialty pharmacy and some potential PBM litigation. Are you aware of any anything like that out there? Yes, we were approached by several uh, pharmacies, specialty pharmacies, who are risking their contract with several PBMs because they're compounding or uh, dispensing specialty drugs and. Um, we're talking about specialty care mark PBM. Uh, they're sending their notice. If you dispense more than 25% of your claims of specialty drugs, 
uh, then your contracts will be terminated. So if you're a pharmacy like that, or you know pharmacists who are about to be terminated by Caremark, call us. Um, we're exploring potential litigation to enjoy such practice. We also heard that Catamaran is doing similar things. They're requiring their pharmacies, participating pharmacies, to have double accreditation. That is a tremendous expense for pharmacies. If they do not get double accreditation, they will be out of the network. So we think that's a big problem and a push by PBMs into mail order. And that will probably result in the chunk of business going to PBM versus independent pharmacies, whom we mostly represent. So if you're a pharmacy like that, that would be great to hear from you because we're trying to ascertain the scope of the problem and potential implication of this potential suit. Also, if you lost any of your business to mail orders by PBMs, we would like to hear from you because... There are potentially several actual potential lawsuits voiding up right now, and we're trying to gather as much facts as possible. Um, and potentially, we can find a lot of file lawsuits to enjoin such practices. Well, sounds good. I'm glad that you guys are definitely taking a look at this. And um, I know we've talked offline. We will definitely, now that we've got this podcast where you've explained this, uh, we are definitely going to. Uh, put this in our newsletter uh, that's due out before May 15th, um, you know, because this definitely is something important and something that specialty pharmacy can benefit from, uh, from talking to you. So, very good. Well, Natalia, it's been great having you on the show today. If our uh, listeners have any questions or follow-up issues or want to talk to you about uh, the TBM litigation, the potential litigation that you would discuss, how do they get a hold of you? Yes, feel free to call me. It's 415-802-4057. Or you can email us. Um, you can email me personally. It's N, it's Natalia, Mazina, M-A-Z-I-N-A, at cmfarmlaw.com. Sounds great. And if anyone has any questions for me offline... Uh, of course, I'm Ron Lanson, Government Affairs Strategist for the Pharmacy Podcast Show, as well as President of True North Political Solutions. Uh, you can always get me on email at ronlanson3 at truenorthps, as in politicalsolutions.com, or you can always tweet us at truenorth underscore ps. Great having you on the show, and uh, I guess we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Ron, so much for having us.